Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Far Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa and Tales to Terrify. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 84. This week we bring you a dramatic tale from the Great White North titled A Deeper Echo, written by David John Fuller. David was born and raised in Winnipeg, but he has also lived in Edmonton and Iceland. He works as a copy editor for the Winnipeg Free Press and writes short fiction. His work has also appeared in Kneeling in the Silver Light, Stories from the Great War, which featured a prequel story to A Deeper Echo, as well as Accessing the Future and Tesseract's 18, Wrestling with Gods. The story is read for you by Martin Rito. Martin is an educator, writer and musician. He has worked in an eclectic variety of fields, including 18 years as a technical writer and software developer, 16 years as a teacher of creative writing, computer science and business communication, and shorter stints as a symphony musician and audiobook narrator. He has published short fiction and two collections of his poetry. So here is the story, A Deeper Echo, by David John Fuller. The smoky grey dire wolf loped between darkened hulks of wooden boxcars on the sprawling CPR train yards of Winnipeg. The early June air was already warm and the sun had yet to rise. Warehouse doors clanged open at the looming Canadian Pacific station. The wolf came to an abrupt halt, sniffing the air. The scent of human body odor grew stronger through the heady mix of diesel and tar stench. A faint smell of pines tinged with oil lingered beneath. The wolf's stocky shoulders were as tall as the tops of the massive grimy wheels, and he knew what would come next, a hostile shout warning off strangers, or worse, a cry of alarm at the sight of a wolf the size of a bear. He'd been shot at enough in the war. Best to hurry, then. Thomas' gray eyes shivered his thick fur to adjust the army-issue satchel that hung beneath his torso. Didn't matter if you were a veteran of Kaki Kichimikating, the Great War. 
Honest work was hard for a man to come by in 1919, and though Thomas had been making ends meet in the dwindling fur trades as being demobbed, that wasn't the reason he had come to Winnipeg. Here, white workers had shut down a city run into the ground by its white owners. The general strike would make it difficult to find who he was looking for. Thomas slipped underneath the couplings between two cars. The grind-clap grind of leather soles on hard-packed ground told him the man approaching was used to being in charge. He turned his snout down to the dark ties and crushed slate and called up the power to change from the earth below. The energy flowed, melting his fur back into bare skin and pulling his snout back into his human face, the rest of his body quickly shedding all traces of his lupine form. He shivered despite the warm air, squinting to the east where the sky brightened to orange. He strained to hear, with dull human ears now, the man's approach, and scrambled to get dressed in the clothes carefully folded in his satchel. He was just tying up his shoelaces when a gruff voice said, Hey, this is private property. A kerosene lamp glared across the space between the cars. Thomas stood. At thirty-nine, his knees were starting to feel sore even after the rejuvenating fire of the change. He wore the same army-issue shirt, coat, and trousers he'd had when returning from the bloody fields of France, and the cap that bore the symbol of his battalion, the Timberwolf. He'd since replaced the shoes and leather belt with his own. His hair was jet black, his nose shaped in a proud hook like his father's, and his skin was just slightly darker than that of the white man who now faced him. Listen, chief, this is no hotel. Scram! Thomas squinted in the harsh chemical light. I couldn't find the room service bill anyway. Company boxcars are private, too. Thomas stepped away from the couplings. He threw his satchel over his shoulders so the Canadian Expeditionary Force sigil and the symbol of the 107th Battalion on his cap were plain in the lamplight. Then it's a good thing I walked here. Where from? Retsucker Lake. The CP man lowered his light. Infantry? That and engineering. The guard looked him up and down. Now was not the time for comment. If you look too much like an out-of-work Indian, they might even find an excuse to call the cops. Winnipeg's boom years still hadn't made it, the Chicago of the North, and the city seemed to take out its resentment on anyone who didn't look or sound Anglo enough. The CP man chewed the inside of his lip. Four hundred miles to come to the rail yard? That's, that's a long walk, Chief. Thomas took a deep breath. He could never be sure what would sting a white person as much as Chief. Probably for the best. He put his hand into the ragged pocket of his coat and clenched his fingers for the hundredth time around the letter he'd received only a week ago. Don't trust airplanes much. The other snorted. <laughs> they have an airport up there already? Thomas allowed a slight smile. Nope, that's why I don't trust him. The CP man spat off to his left. 
If you're not after work, what are you looking for? Family named Fotheringham. What, the clothes makers? Thomas shrugged. Mrs. Allen Fotheringham? Yeah, that's the one, but you won't have much luck at their shop. It's all closed up. Strike? The CP man nodded. Mood's ugly in town if you're just in from the north. First the war, then the flu, now the strike. Most of our mechanical department fellows walked off the job, but I'm still here. Police got all fired two weeks ago when they wouldn't sign away their right to a union, and now the city's got some special constables running around. Big fight with them and the strikers the other day. Thomas was used to dealing with the Northwest Mounted Police near his reserve. Some of them honorable fellows, but he didn't know much about the city police. He wondered whether the Ukrainian wolf pack in the city's north end he'd heard about were mixed up in the strike. Best if he stayed out of their way, too. That doesn't sound good. The CP man put a hand up to the side of his mouth. Bunch of thugs. Don't tell anyone I said that. He glanced to the brightening eastern sky. Going to get worse before it gets better. Rail and post office, the only thing still going for sure. Maybe I'll try that shop. Do you know where it is? It's probably locked up tight, but it's ladies' day at the soldiers' parliament today. So what? A lot of vets aren't for the strike, but the ones who are meet in Victoria Park. They'll probably come after you, too. Today they're letting the women run the show and make the speeches. Hmm, said Thomas. Just about all the workers at Fotheringham's are women, all on strike. Thomas took a deep breath. They might know how to reach her, eh? The CP man shrugged. It's a start. Me, Gretch. Beg pardon? Thomas had been up north long enough to have slipped into Island Lakes dialect Ojibwe without thinking. Thank you, he said. The guard waved it off. Now, I wouldn't stick around if I were you. Boss doesn't like Indians. Thomas clenched his jaws. The boss would probably like a wolf at his door even less. He turned in the direction of Main Street and left the CP man to his rounds. Though his infant granddaughter was safely hidden with relatives on the reserve, he needed to find this nice white woman who had made off with his children. The Fotheringham shop was closed. All the windows shuttered. The stink of uncollected garbage muddled up the heavy air. At Victoria Park, men in full suits mingled with women in dresses and hats. It might have almost seemed a picnic, but for raised voices and pro-labor placards. Veterans hurried through the crowd in their olive uniforms. The newspapers Thomas had glanced through over lunch had made much of the foreign and Bolshevik supporters of the strike, but here the accent that soared most often through the air was distinctly British, not Russian or Ukrainian. Funny kind of Bolshevism, Thomas thought. One of the soldiers took a second glance at Thomas as he marched by and stopped. A hundred and seventh? Thomas noted the other's lieutenant rank and saluted. Yes, sir, Corporal Thomas Grayeyes. The lieutenant saluted back. The Indian Battalion, you did your country proud at Hill 70. 
scared the Huns right down to their boots, I'm told. Thomas didn't bother to correct him that half of the 107th had been white. Thank you, sir. The officer extended his hand. Lieutenant Alexander Mackenzie, Fort Garry Horse. Thomas nodded. The dark circles beneath Mackenzie's eyes that matched those on Thomas's face spoke for them. I hope you're here to show your support, said Mackenzie. Actually, I'm looking for someone, sir. Eh? Who? A Mrs. Allen Fotheringham. She sent me a letter about my children, but I don't have an address. He showed the letter to Mackenzie. This is to your wife. Thomas clenched back a sob. She died. Tuberculosis. Mackenzie's face smoothed. Terribly sorry to hear it. All we hear about is so many ravaged by the flu. Thomas bit his tongue to keep from shouting. It might not have been Mackenzie's fault the reserves didn't have proper houses or enough doctors to treat the epidemic, but he still had no polite response. Mackenzie handed the letter back to him. I dare say some of Fotheringham's employees might be here today. Thank you, said Thomas. Why not stay for a while, right around here where I can find you, and I'll see what I can do. He saluted, which Thomas echoed, and then marched off. Stay for a while, thought Thomas, so it seems you're standing with us. A sea of soldiers and women surged around him. The sun crept overhead as the leaders of the event took the stage, and Thomas threw himself back to memories that had kept him sane during the war. The pleasing, awkward weight of his newborn son when his wife first handed him to him, swaddled in cotton and rabbit fur, that memory seemed more distant now than the bite of his shoulder stalk when he fired into the darkness from the trenches, and it echoed more deeply through him. His children grew whenever he returned from the trap line. They tottered on pudgy legs across the bare boards of the space that served as kitchen, dining room, and bedroom, little moccasins slapping the wood with every uncertain step. Then they were gangly coyotes, eager to join him in the woods, listening to stories about the Creator, the animals, and man's place in the world, and especially, as his grandmother had told them to him, Tales of the Mahnikan, the wolf. Those moments were a different world. After three years in the service, he'd finally gotten to see his daughter and son again, and they were strangers to him. Worse, since his son looked so much like Thomas's own mother, the same long face, high cheekbones, it seemed she looked at him through his son's eyes. The silence between Thomas and his children became stiff, uncomfortable. The way they avoided his eyes now didn't seem a mark of respect, but shame. Could they see the invisible hole in his chest, which ached when the whine of a mosquito triggered the memory of an incoming shell, the way he felt blown apart without so much as a scratch on him? His son and daughter had stood across the room from him, the gulf between them as wide as the Atlantic. He was back in Canada, after years in France and Belgium, but it was like coming to a new country again, one in which he no longer belonged. 
When the speeches were done and the cheering crowd began to disperse, it was late afternoon, and Thomas's uniform was damp with sweat. Lieutenant Mackenzie appeared again, as good as his word, with the woman in tow who gave Thomas directions to the Father Ingham's home. The western sky was fading to orange when Thomas found 96 Balmoral Street, a dark red house that towered above the elm saplings on the boulevard. The row of two-story mansions faced across a grassy expanse where scaffolding and cranes loomed against the enormous new legislative building. How many families could fit into just one of these places, Thomas wondered. The house on the Red Sucker Lake Reserve, where he and his wife had lived, and where she had died, was little more than a shack. Thomas steadied himself with a quivering hand on the rail and crept up the stairs to the gabled front porch. They're my children, he told himself. They'll come. Inside he heard voices, plates clanging together, suitcases dragged upstairs, and closets opened and shut punctuated by hurried footsteps. He heard a woman's voice calling instructions, the notes high, even shrill. He knocked once on the solid wood door. A small white woman in a housemaid's uniform opened it and said, Finally! She cut herself off and stared at him. He swallowed. My name is Thomas Grey-Eyes. I came to get my children. He wanted to add, Can I see them? as he would with dealing with any white person of authority. But he bit the words back. They had taken his children away. He was through asking. I, that is, who, who are you? said the woman. Her face was flushed and she seemed out of breath. A door slammed somewhere upstairs. Thomas pulled the letter from his pocket and unfolded it. Is this the home of the Fotheringhams? He knew some white people didn't know whether to trust you unless you had a piece of paper or a document to prove what you were saying. Agnes! came a woman's voice from the floor above. It echoed through the porcelain-tiled lobby. The maid glanced at the letter in Thomas's hand and then over her shoulder. Just a moment, she said, and closed the door. He waited. When the door reopened, the maid stood behind a taller woman, wearing her chocolate-brown hair up and clothed in a peach and gray dress. Her eyes were green and dark and fixed on Thomas, glancing up and down before she spoke. Can I help you? Thomas took a deep breath and spoke the way he used to with the Hudson's Bay Company man when he wanted the best price for his fox and mink furs, polite and firm, no smile. I've come for my children, Marie and John. I understand you took them from the school they were in, but now it's time for them to come home. Shall I call the police, ma'am? said the maid. The woman turned to her. The police are still on strike, Agnes. It's the special constables now. But no, I see no need for that. She turned to Thomas. Won't you come in? Perhaps we can discuss this to everyone's satisfaction. Thomas didn't like the sound of that. He caught the hard tone in her voice. But he nodded and stepped in. 
The maid closed the door and locked it. See to the luggage, Agnes, and remind the children they're to make themselves presentable. Her voice trailed off. Agnes waited a beat and then scurried up the stairs. Please join me, the woman said. She gestured into a candlelit room off the main entrance. The air was hot and muggy. I'm Gladys Fotheringham, she said, extending her hand. Thomas shook it. Her skin was soft and smooth, no calluses. Thomas gray eyes. The room's dark walls were lined with bookshelves. Two deep green wing-back chairs flanked a massive fireplace. Mrs. Fotheringham gestured to one as she sat in the other. Please, have a seat. Thomas did. I wish I could offer you some tea. Do you drink tea? And But with the water pressure so low due to the strike, we've been running short. I'm sure you understand. Thomas nodded. I'd like to see my children. Mrs. Fotheringham cleared her throat. Yes, I understand. May I ask how you heard they were here? We had no idea how to reach you when we received word your wife had died. The lump in Thomas's throat made his words thick. I asked around. He swallowed hard. I'd like to see them. They need to come home. When was the last time you saw them? she asked, an edge to her voice. Winter time at Christmas. I see. She smoothed the crease in the lap of her dress. I don't believe the school was a good place for them. Thomas's heart began to pound. Was it really going to be this easy? We've been trying to get them home for years, he said, for good. But the priests and the government men say we can't, not even when I'm making good money. How did you come to take them here? Her smile was brittle. My sister is a nun who teaches at the school. Her face fell and she looked to the empty fireplace. They had an outbreak of tuberculosis. Thomas didn't need the keen nose of a wolf to tell him her scent was off, and so was her story. But the mention of the disease brought back the thought of his wife, and roaring filled his ears. He saw his wife Clara's face again, pale and still. He wiped a sweaty hand over his eyes. Stop it. She's gone. Mrs. Fotheringham's voice slowly intruded. He'd missed what she'd been saying. Seemed for the best. We'd made arrangements for them to have a tutor, as we would if we had children of our own. But recent events have made that difficult. What did you say? We planned to continue their education. Of course, you may... Thomas gripped the wooden corners of his chair's arms and leaned forward. What happened? Mrs. Fotheringham licked her lips. Where? At the school. They weren't happy about going there, but they stopped talking about it to us. We heard they were beaten if they spoke our language or sang the songs we taught them. We saw the marks on my daughter's back. Now she won't show us. Me. She wouldn't let us see the last time they came home. I'm sure I don't know anything about that. Thomas surged to his feet. You're lying. 
Mrs. Fotheringham shrank against the back of her chair. Mr. Grey-Eyes, please. The clack-clack of shoes announced the arrival of the maid. Ma'am, she said sharply, darting her face into the room. Mrs. Fotheringham waved her off without looking away from Thomas. When visiting my sister there last month, Mrs. Fotheringham said in a low voice, I could see the children were unhappy. Whether it's because they aren't used to a civilized education or due to something else, I could not tell. The sisters and the principal said they were doing their best to teach them. I offered to take some of them should the need arise, and when we got word, Thomas shook and spoke through his teeth. They let a white woman walk in and take our children when she wants to, but not their own parents who've been trying to get them back for years. Mrs. Father Ingham's eyes glistened, but her mouth was set in a straight line. I am not in charge of the schools, Mr. Grayeyes. He stalked to the door, re-entering the electric glare of the lobby. They're coming with me, he said over her shoulder. Wait! But Thomas was already heading up the stairs. John! Marie! It's your... His voice gave out suddenly. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When he saw their beautiful faces peering down the staircase from the second floor, he spread his arms even though his chest suddenly ached. Nini Chanisak, he said. They both flinched at the sound of his voice, throwing their hands up as if to ward off a blow. He hesitated. What is it? he said. Neither of them spoke. They looked older now, especially his daughter, even though she was the younger of the two. Something about her eyes, the deep brown in them used to sparkle, but now it just seemed dark and hollow. Mrs. Fotheringham came to stand in the middle of the lobby, waiting silently below Thomas. Kipapanin, he said. They flinched and turned their faces, taking a step back. I'm your father, he repeated. I've come for you. 
His son glanced down as if he could see through the floor to where Mrs. Fotheringham stood. Thomas knew that look. It was the same face a junior soldier made when he didn't know which commanding officer to listen to. Thomas turned to Mrs. Fotheringham. I'd like to speak to them alone. Children, called Mrs. Fotheringham, show him to the room where your things are, but make sure you're all packed. Marie looked at him, her head bowed, then turned and went through a door near the edge of the second floor landing. John did the same. Thomas walked up the second set of stairs and followed his children in. He closed the door behind them. The drapes were closed, and the only light in the room came from a kerosene lamp, its glass flute already blackened with soot. John and Marie huddled next to a dresser with its top drawer empty, a half-packed suitcase by their feet on the hardwood floor. The flame cast deep shadows up the sides of their faces as they stared at him. It had been more than three years since the Indian Affairs agents had come with the representatives from the school to take his children and many of the others on the reserve away. Thomas's tongue felt thick with all the words left unspoken since then. They were strangers now, and yet so clearly descended from his people and Clara's. His ancestors' voices seemed ready to burst forth from their mouths. But they had shied just now when he spoke in their native tongue. Clearly at the school they had been taught to keep those voices silent. He pulled up a chair draped with unpacked clothing. There seemed to be mountains of it in the room, more than he and his family had ever owned, and sat leaning forward as he had when they used to sit around the campfire. They stared mutely back at him. I would like to invite you to come home. He tried to speak the way his grandmother would, not the demanding way that worked better with city-dwelling white folks. He paused, but the two barely breathed, their nostrils twitching. There are some things I would like to tell you. Marie jerked forward. Why didn't you come to get us? I was unable to leave when, when your mother died. It was only partly true, but there were only so many things he could tell them about at once. No, before, she said, tears welling in her eyes, her beautiful black hair, still cropped short the way the nuns had cut it, was a jagged raven's wing of shadow in the lamplight. You never came. They said we'd never go home until we could learn to be good. Why didn't you come? I was away. Marie interrupted again, her chin jutting forward in a way that made Thomas proud, even as it frightened him. Here was the girl's spirit he remembered, but now it raged at him. Why was that more important? John put his arm across her body, holding her back. Marie, no! Thomas put up his hands. We tried, your mother and I. They, they said if we took you without permission, we'd go to jail. We wrote letters. I worked to make more money, and then the war... John stepped forward. It doesn't matter. Mrs. Fotheringham got us out. For a second, Thomas's heart soared, but then he saw the unforgiving set of his son's jaw. She'll take us to their country house, she said. 
When the strike is over, we'll come back. Then they'll have us in a real school. Thomas's throat was suddenly so dry he could barely speak. You have a home already. I can take you back. No, said Marie. You can't make me be Indian. But I... She shook her head and crumpled, pulling her fists up to cover her face and ears. I don't want to go into the shed. Please! Thomas's heart pounded as he recognized the tone in her voice. That same terror ripped from his own throat when he would relive his friends being blown apart by shrapnel, the whistling shriek of an incoming shell. But there she was, even as her brother held her tight to soothe the shudders that racked her body. She had known horror while he was away. Thomas lurched out of the chair and fell to his knees, crawling toward his children until he could wrap his long arms around their shivering backs. John tried to throw his arms away, but Thomas hugged them tighter. I know. I don't know what, but I know it. I know it. You can't, said John. Thomas wanted to tell them. He knew what it was like to be sneered at for being Indian, how the white men in his unit had welcomed him the least and the last, how he'd had to go the extra mile, literally, in his recon duties to prove himself. The only comments had been about how he was older than most of them, but the unspoken remarks were what lingered. Indian. Illiterate. Savage. His first sergeant had assumed Thomas could only read animal tracks, that he fed himself by hunting with a bow and arrow and wouldn't understand tired tread marks, boot prints, or the sound of German soldiers creeping through the muck of no man's land. His daughter's words, You can't make me be Indian, dredged all that back up. After long moments of sobbing, he quieted, and their breathing became less ragged. He didn't know how long Mrs. Fotheringham would give them before coming to claim his children, but so far her footsteps still echoed only from the first floor. Ninij Anisak, he said before switching to English, you don't have to be anything but what you are, and you are beautiful. If you could see the way your ancestors' faces shine in yours, you would be proud, as I am of you. You're so strong, and we can be strong together, not pulled apart to be put into other people's places. Marie looked up at him, her dark eyes hard and her cheeks glistening. I can't go. They took my baby. They might do something. Thomas glanced to the side. His hearing wasn't as good as when he was a wolf, and it had been worse since the thunder of the war, but he was pretty sure not even the maid was close enough to hear it through the door. He dropped his voice to a whisper. We hit her, your baby, your mother and I. The teachers at the school think she died in the hospital, but we took her. She's with your uncle, now, back home. What? Shh, shh. We had to keep it a secret until we could get you out, both of you. Will you come? Marie's lip trembled, and she made a choking sound. John grabbed Thomas's upper arm. Why didn't you tell us? We were afraid, too. 
The sound of an automobile growled and sputtered to a halt from the street out front. In the lobby downstairs, footsteps clattered across the tile floor. They were coming to take us in a car tonight, said John. You don't have to go, said Thomas. You can come with me. He cracked a tiny smile. But you'll have to walk. His son and daughter shared a long look. Thomas caressed their shoulders and backs roughly. There's more power in you than they know, and there's something else I can share with you when the time is right. Think of some of the stories we shared when you were little. You know the ones, the ones you wanted to be a part of, about the Mahid Kanak. Slow remembrance of driven-out words crinkled Marie's brow. The... the wolves? Thomas nodded. I couldn't tell you everything then, because sometimes a story has to be told at different times. But if you want to come with me, that story is waiting for you. You're already a part of it, and you cannot be made to feel less than human in it. I don't have a big house or much money, but I can give you that. Children, called Agnes from the staircase landing, grab your things. There were deep voices from the entrance downstairs and quick feet clattered up the staircase. Thomas held his breath as his daughter and son broke their gaze and turned to look at him. We're coming, said John and Marie. Together they went to the door and opened it. Agnes stepped back, startled. Are you ready? John raised his chin and looked at her. The spitting image of Clara's father facing down an Indian affairs agent thirty years ago. Confusion pinched her face. Thomas turned to Agnes and said goodbye and followed his children. Two men waited for them on the main floor. Their shirt sleeves were rolled up and each carried what looked like a section from a wagon wheel spindle, long as a baseball bat. Their dark eyes locked onto Thomas as he stopped in the tiled lobby. He knew by the straight-backed air of authority coupled with the rounded shoulders. They saw themselves as above the law. Given their neckties, vests, and matching trousers, he guessed these were two of the special constables who had replaced the police. Mrs. Fotheringham's hand was still on the doorknob, and the two men brushed past her. "'This the one?' said the taller of the two, glaring at Thomas. "'There's no need for trouble,' said Mrs. Fotheringham. "'Thank you all the same, sirs.' She threw a glance at Thomas, cutting around in front of the burly men. "'I did not call these men here, I assure you. "'Agnes, offer our guests some tea while I speak to Mr. Grey-Eyes.' The constable ignored her. "'All right, chief, let's go.' It's okay, Thomas said with a slight smile. You can call me Corporal. The shorter constable, whose face was dark with stubble, stepped forward and pulled the revolver from his pocket. I don't take orders from savages. Push off! The taller constable grimaced at his partner. What the hell are you doing? Think we can't handle this the old way? After them Bolsheviks pushed us around Tuesday, the boss said we should let him know who's in charge. Well, this is it. Come on, chief. Outside. Gentlemen, please, Mrs. Fotheringham said, holding out her hands. 
"'And it's all right,' Thomas said to her softly. "'We were just leaving.' "'What?' Mrs. Fotheringham's eyes flicked to Thomas's face and then to his children. "'John? Marie, is this true?' "'We're going,' said John, "'and no white man is going to stop us.' The constable cocked his gun. Thomas's pulse quickened. He knew how badly things could go, and the sooner they were outside, the better, even if the constables followed them out. As a wolf, he'd have had no trouble, but there was no time to change. "'No one asked you, kid,' said the armed constable. "'Sir,' said Mrs. Fotheringham, her voice carrying a note of panic, "'I must ask you to leave. This is not a police matter.' "'We'll see about that,' said the taller man. He pointed his great stick directly at Thomas's face. It brought back the image of a German rifle Thomas had stared down for a split second before ducking. One of the times, as a wolf, he'd prowled too close to enemy lines and had been spotted. That shot still rang in his ears, even though it had missed him. "'You,' said the constable, "'outside. The little brave and the little squaw can stay here.' Thomas fought to keep his mind clear. He couldn't afford a flashback to the war now. It's fine, he said weakly, then repeated himself more loudly. I'll go. He stepped toward the constables, his hands up. They wouldn't know to make him put his hands behind his head like he'd done with the POWs. These two didn't seem like veterans of anything but street brawls. Mrs. Fotheringham moved as if to put her hand on her shoulders, but the constables still had their weapons up, and she hesitated. Mr. Grey-Eyes, I do apologize. Please stay. It'll be better if I go, he said, looking the taller constable in the eye. Without rank insignia, it was hard to know which of them was boss, but when in doubt, it was always best to take out the bigger opponent." The tremors rippling through his body subsided, and Thomas slowed his breathing. He'd come back later for his children. They'd wait for him after he'd dealt with the constables. It was going to be all right. Suddenly, John leapt from the foot of the stairs, knocking Mrs. Fotheringham back as he grabbed for the constable's truncheon. "'You can't take him!' Thomas shouted, "'Don't!' as the other constable fired. Bam! Thomas watched his son crumple and fall. Other soldiers who had come back with shell shock might collapse into a ball covering their ears or attack the source of the disruption. But for Thomas, much deeper instincts kicked in, twisted by the horrors of modern war. He changed. His clothes bulged and ripped beneath hulking, furry shoulders. The revolver thundered again in the small space, but Thomas was already lurching right at the smaller constable, pushing him down, and the shot went wide. Something hard crashed down on his back and head again and again, the other constable's truncheon, but now his clothing hucked him in shreds. He was the Mahinkan. The constable fired uselessly at the wall, unable to free his arm from Thomas's teeth. The sound brought back memories of the trenches. At any moment, a shell would come screaming out of the sky and destroy them all. He shook the man like a rabbit. Bones snapped. The constable yelled, and the weapon clattered away on the floor. 
Thomas wheeled to face the other, still raining blows down on him with wild shouts he could barely hear in the fading echo of the revolver shots. Turning his great lupine snout to the side, he seized the man's ribcage in his jaws and crushed it. The constable gasped and crumpled. Mrs. Fotheringham screamed and ran back into the sitting-room. Thomas was conscious of his son's body on the floor beneath them, unmoving, and using his massive neck muscles, he hauled the constable away from him. The urge to tear the man to pieces gripped him, but Thomas paused. He sought the quiet he'd sometimes known in the boreal forest long ago, a deeper echo of who he was. His daughter stood frozen, clutching the handrail, a look of horror twisting her mouth and eyes. The maid, Agnes, had disappeared upstairs. He heard her wailing. His son lay in a widening pool of blood near the body of the smaller constable, whose arm Thomas had mangled. He crossed the lobby in a single leap and pressed his paws on his son's still form. He reached deep with his mind down through the earth to pull up enough power to heal the damage in his son's chest, knit the sinews and flesh back together, and make it whole beneath the black pads of a dire wolf's paws. Long moments passed. No one made a sound. When it was done, he allowed the power within the earth, the great mother, to change him back into his human self, clothed now in the tatters of his CEF uniform, kneeling with his hands pressed onto his son's back. There was no movement. He crouched down, cursing his still-ringing ears, but when placing his head onto his son's back, he felt it. A heartbeat. Sobs shuddered out of Thomas. His son lay motionless but alive, and the sounds around him came as if from miles away. Mrs. Fotheringham staggered past, making for the back of the house. She slammed the door to the lobby behind her. Marie slumped down on the wood staircase. After a long moment, Thomas looked up at her. "'We need to bring you to your daughter,' he said." Marie shook her head, staring at her brother. How? Marie, he said, we must go. John will recover. He wrapped his arms around his son, pulling his body up off the blood-slick tiles. Usually after the change, Thomas felt renewed, energized. But trying to heal another always drained him. Now he felt cold and tired in a way that took him back to the day after Vimy Ridge, a victory that did not mean the end of anything. There was only hope in a new beginning. He stood raising John in his arms as he had years earlier. We named her Marion. Who? Your daughter, because she looks so much like you. Marie put a hand on the dark wood banister and pulled herself up. What'll we do? Thomas took a deep breath, listening hard outside. He could drive, but he had no intention of stealing the constable's automobile. A borrowed boat, however, might be the best way out of the city. To the river bank. The red flows north. Selkirk isn't that far, and I can get help there. 
Fi papa, she said clumsily, wincing. Father. Shh, he kissed her forehead. Your mother would be proud of you. Together they bore John out the open front door into the deep indigo of summer twilight. Astounding. A Deeper Echo was originally published in Long Hidden, Speculative Fiction from the Margins of History, from Cross Genres Publications, a crowd-funded anthology that pushes the boundaries of contemporary fantasy fiction, broadens its scope, and shines a light on corners of history that should not be overlooked. We strongly recommend it. That's all we have time for today, but first, a quick message. Hello, Sophonauts. Hello, followers of Farfetched Fables. And hello, children of the night. My name's Seth, and, like you, I'm a listener at the District of Wonders. Today I wanted to tell you why I also became a patron. Every week I know I can come here to the District and find some of the best genre fiction available, for free. This community is valuable to me. I count on it, and I spend a lot of time here. And as a result, I wanted to give back. I wanted to make sure that these podcasts are going to be available today, tomorrow, and for years in the future. If you believe, like I do, in the District of Wonders, open your browser or your smartphone. Go to Patreon and give whatever you can. Remember, individually, we each give a little. But as a community, we give a lot. Thank you. And a reminder. Dear listeners, Farfetched Fables is now accepting submissions for our podcast, as well as artwork for our website and social media pages. Check out the submissions pages on the Triple F website for details. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but you cannot change it and you cannot sell it. And please give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. Violators will be fed toes first to the wolves. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. Heck, you can even send us an email. We'd love that. If you pop over to our sister podcast, Starship Sofa, and click on the Submission Guide, hmm... There might be something interesting for you there, too. I'll leave that up to you. Have a lovely day wherever you are and whatever time it happens to be. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is the story of the one. 
As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.